Blog Talk Radio.
and then we have some youth we would like to speak to in terms of they made a very significant contribution to our people liberation, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Brother Opie, we'd like to welcome you to Africa on the Moon, and like always, it's always an honor and privilege to have you on the air program, because when you come, you come with some very powerful information. So, Brother Opie, again, briefly introduce yourself and tell a little something about your theater company. Um, yes, um, good evening, um, Brother Africa and everyone. It's always an honor to be on. Um, it's been a couple of years, but time flies. Um, today, um, we're going to be talking about the Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company, which was created in 2011 in Washington, D.C., and it comes in the tradition of the pioneers of the revolution in Burkina Faso, started by the great um, Pan-African revolutionary Thomas Sankara, former president of Burkina Faso. It comes in the tradition of the um, Young Pioneers Institute of the Convention People's Party in Ghana during the time of Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. It comes in the tradition of the JRDA, um, which was the youth wing of the Democratic Party of Guinea under the leadership of Secretary just taking a look at the children's component that would deal with um, making our cultural and political expression synonymous. And also in the capacity of being a teacher, always exploring different strategies and techniques to make our history engaging and dealing with um, the struggle of making sure that resistance becomes the cornerstone of our narrative where the dominant narrative is still rooted in victimization. And um, so and making sure the young people are as engaged as possible. So to this point, we have 19 productions and uh, that have been performed in eight years. And in addition to the productions, we have a couple of special projects. Um, we have a campaign through a documentary that we did appealing to actors and actresses not to play police officers, military officers, and intelligence agents in televisions and movies. And... Um, a month ago, uh, about two weeks ago, we have a very unique contribution that we made to the landscape. And the pioneering effort was done by our two guests, who I'm about to introduce our guest of honor tonight. You have DJ Dash, age 10 years old, and Xavier, his counterpart and his biological brother, 13 years old. So they're about to share their contribution with the show. Take it away, young brother. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening, my brother. My name Thank you. Thank you for having us on the show. My name is Xavier. You already know that. And I'm 13 years old. And my name is DJ Dash, age 10. Okay. Brother DJ and Xavier, one is the reason why we would like to have you on the show today. We would like to talk to you. As producers, you produce a very beautiful piece, a tribute to Brother Kwame Ture, which was June 29th, would have been his 78th birthday. You produce a very beautiful tribute. My first question to both of y'all, what made y'all um, develop an interest to produce such a video? Why do a video honoring Brother Kwame Ture? Well, around the time when Baba Obi asked us to make this project, I was interested in audio mixing. So it was pretty much the perfect opportunity for me to practice my audio mixing skills. 
And well, I, I joined around the time. I heard, I heard, I heard, I heard Alex and Mom talking about it in the car, and I asked if I could join. They said yes, so I hopped in the bandwagon and I helped. I helped with the project. Okay, when you were doing the project, what was one of the major things you wanted to convey to the audience when they see your work? What are one of the major things you want them to always remember as you think about the life and the legacy of Brother Kwame Ture from your perspective? Something to share, something to share with our peers because we wanted more people to know about who Kwame Ture was. Okay. Okay, right now what we're going to do, um, we have a political panelist here. They may have some comments or questions they would like to ask you all. It's fun the beautiful work that you have produced. A tribute to Brother Kwame Ture. We start with Brother Haki. Brother Haki, the mic is yours. You can now speak to our beautiful youth, Brother DJ Dash and Xavier. Brother Haki. Yeah, for Brother Haki. Yeah, let me just uh, express my uh, <clears throat> happiness with um, the young <clears throat> young brother and sisters' uh, work. Uh, you know, they are they are extremely important in terms of you know. Uh, you know, involving our youth in terms of, you know, consciousness raising. So they have a, they perform a very valuable resource in terms of ensuring that young people understand that, you know, a lot of our young people are out here doing positive things, and these young people are an indication of the kind of positivity that exists in the African community. But having said that, let me ask the young sister, um, in terms of the project around quality there, there, right? bro- there are two brothers. Two brothers. There are two, two brothers. Boys. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right, and let me ask the uh, the thirteen year old. In, in terms of the the project, um, what did you like most about the project? The part I like most about the project, well, I guess I like the two parts. My first part that I liked was watching the speeches, and my second favorite part was getting to edit and put in the music and video. Okay. Brother Anthony, your question comments to the youth. Certainly. Uh, congratulations on the video tribute you did to Kwame Teray. You did a great job with that. Uh, I would like to ask both of you, what were what was what were the most important things you learned about Kwame Teray during the course of uh, of uh, uh, doing this uh, production? To you, what learning. were the most important things you learned about Kwame? Learning about Kwame Ture himself and learning about his key mission to organize the masses of our people. Yes, I must agree. Okay. Brother Zubari, your question comments to you today? <clears throat> okay, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yes. Oh, can you hear me? Okay. Um, first and foremost, kudos to you all for an exceptional project. And I'm just curious, yeah, yeah. who will be the next time you um, engage on a project of this nature, who will be the next historical figure you'd like to highlight and um, share with the people something about? Dr. Amos Wilson. Okay. And Brother Moses, your question comments to the youth. Thank you. Uh, 
this this was the, probably the most comprehensive uh, uh, thing I've seen on, on Brother Kwame Ture uh, uh, and his life and his, his philosophy and his world outlook. I, I thought it was well put together, and uh, and like I said, I, I thought it was at least I don't know I, I may not be the the most uh, conscious of of Kwame Ture's works, but but it was the most comprehensive. Thing I've seen to date, and uh, I appreciate it. And uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I just leave it right there. I really don't have any questions. I leave it right there. Thank you. You know, um, Brother Dash and Xavier, do both of y'all have uh, aspirations to become uh, filmmakers, particularly political filmmakers? Well, for filmmaking, we ha- our parents have this business called Event Stream. So my role, DJ Dash, is to do this switching. So I'm pretty much a technical director. One, and I'm a camera operator, Xavier. What I'll do is I'll run cameras like our Panasonic, and our Blackmagic camera. Okay, and the last question for the day, too, both of y'all, is that when you think about the influence of Brother Opie, which is one of y'all teachers, from my understand, what would you say about some of the things that you got learned from Brother Opie? Well, it was me and my sister Naomi in his class. One it's been a while, so I can't say I remember a lot. So one thing I remember about the most was my role in the play. Okay. My role was my role in the play was William Indigana, the leader of the Cockadal Gang. And we talked about, and then the play talked about the um, Zimbabwe, Revo- Zimbabwe Revolution. We streamed and recorded it on uh, the first and second play. All right, excellent. Well, to both of y'all, we'd like to thank you for being a part of this program today. We definitely like to thank you for the great contribution that you have made to our people daily struggles, and your work is excellent. We'd like to encourage you to be a good example for our youth of the day and uh, continue to do good work. We'd like to thank you. And we will now go back to Opie. Brother Opie, are you there? Yeah, yes, I'm here. Brother Opie, one of the things that we like actually about your relationship with the youth, we also understand that you work with the San Kofi homeschool community. Now, what is that community like, and how does it view education in terms of its methodology of teaching their kids about their history and their culture? Um. Well, um, one of the things is... Um, I've been I've been teaching um, 29 years, but the Sankofa homeschool community in particular, the last eight, and that was put together by some African women, uh, Monica Utsi and um, Jessica DeSilva. They're the founders of it, and it's a group of just working class sisters who understand what's going on at this critical juncture in the field of education with the masses of our people, as we're having this conversation. In the United States of America, 8,000 8, children drop out of school every day. 
which is three million, three point five million a year, and we make up eight hundred and fifty of that demographic. So Africans represent ten point five percent. So just understanding um, what that means, what the social ramifications of that are, the cultural ramifications, and of course the political ramifications, it's about having alternatives. And we understand um, how formal education and political education go hand in hand. The decolonization process. So what that enabled us to do is um, be teaching through that. And it's one of the uh, groupings that we're able to funnel children into mass emphasis. So we teach at Sankofa Homeschool Community. We've taught at Muhammad University of Islam. We've taught at Roots Public Charter School and Roots Activity Learning Center. And now we're doing some online teaching um, at the I Educational Institute. So it's been an excellent vehicle to um, begin to um, funnel young people into our efforts. Man, in terms of when we look at this, this whole question of the mass emphasis children history and theater company, you mm-hmm. have been able to do many products that have impacted how we view our culture and our history. Can you talk about some of the works that y'all have created? And, how do and, people get yeah, access to it? Yes, interestingly enough, um, the, uh, Kwame Ture is involved in this effort indirectly. Um, in 1995, I remember going to pick him up from the airport in D.C., and it was the last time that he spoke at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and he spoke at the University of Maryland College Park. So um, he gets in the car, and he starts talking to us about he had just come from Jamaica, spending time with a group called the African Student Club, and he just talked about the experience. And then, um, so we're playing um, a Santana song in the car, and a Santana's rendition of Olatunji's uh, Yoruba song, which is on the legendary 1964 Drums of Passion album. So um, what happens is he's like, who's that singing Santana's song? I mean, singing Olatunji's song, and we say Santana. And he's like, ah, you got to get the original. You know, Santana's a baby to this. And I started laughing, and he wanted to know what was so funny. And I told him that I had both tapes on my dresser and meant to pick up the Olatunji tape. So he tells me, he says, you know, this stuff that we're trying to do on the political front, it's always been in the culture, and we're trying to catch up to what our artists have done. And so um, we're we're driving in a car, and then he taps me on my shoulder, and he apologizes. And I said, apologize for what? And he said, man, your father was light years ahead of us in the struggle to make African people's cultural and political expression synonymous. And uh, so he ends up asking me, do I envision myself at some point getting involved in cultural and artistic work? So in 1995, I'm, um, at the time, I'm 25 years old, um, on the verge of turning 26. So, of course, you know, we hadn't envisioned that, honesty compels us to say. But through constant struggle in this particular area of education and just utilizing the classroom inspired by the approach that Walter Rodney took to the classroom, the approach that Mangalizo Robert Sabukwe of the PAC took to the classroom, that Nyerere took to the classroom, that both uh, Robert and Sally Mugabe took to the classroom, uh, many of our different pioneer, frontline pioneers whose skill happened to be teaching, we're always exploring different methods. We're always exploring different techniques 
So from that, um, we ended up doing Mass Emphasis. And um, the first play, I'll try to do them in order. Um, the first play was called African Liberation Day Through Children's Eyes. The second play was called Cuba's Greatest Army, a tribute to the Cuban doctors. Our third play was called Sally Mugabe Lives Forever. Our fourth play was called The, World, the War in the Classroom. Our fifth play was called In Remembrance of Kwame Nkrumah and Thomas Sankara. Our sixth play was called um, Same Neighborhood, Different Perspectives, a conversation between General Colin Powell and Kwame Ture. Our seventh play was called Maintaining Resistance Behind the Bars. Then we did a play called The Giant Mini Overlooked, reintroducing Julian Mayfield. Then we did um, a play called Standing Strong in 1965, Reflections, Resiliency, and Resistance, The Sisters Who Fought with Their Pens. Our only adult play is called Gorillas, Mothers, and Wives, in tribute to the Eritrean women and the Eritrean Revolution. Um, we've done two Zimbabwean plays, The Yinga Yinga and The Bush, which is about Josiah Tongogaro, who led the armed struggle in Zimbabwe, which um, Brother Xavier was talking about, and another one called Our Heroes Still Guide Us. And um, we did a play in December called Araminta and Samora, Healers of the Sick, Liberators of the Oppressed, which was about the lives and work of Samora Marshall, Mozambique's first president, and Harriet Tubman, to show the parallels between their lives. And the last play that we just done, did for African Liberation Day this year was called 1925, which was about the childhood of Patrice Lumumba, the childhood of France Fanon, and the childhood of Brother Malcolm who were all, as you all know, born in 1925. So those are the, so that's the approach, um, and we're just going to keep going. And um, we have some plays in the works that we're writing right now. So um, in the eight years, we've worked roughly with about 300 children, and it takes about 25 children to pull off each production. And also you have produced many liberation Songs and CDs. Can you talk a little bit about your work? Oh, yeah, um, of course. Yes. um, As I said earlier, through Mass Emphasis, we produced a um, a documentary, a mini-documentary called Don't Play These Roles, which was our first piece of advocacy for the children, where it's an appeal for them to actors and actresses, not to play uh, military officers, intelligence officers, and police officers in television, film, or on stage. And um, we also, through another thing, um, in 2005, um, one of the greatest MCs in the genre of hip-hop in the history of it, Nas, collaborated with this younger son of um, Bob Marley, um, Damian Jr. Gong Marley, and they did an um, album called Distant Relatives, but it was a follow-up to Junior Gong's debut album. And on that album, he had a song called Welcome to Jam Rock. And uh, that's the name of the album. But there's a song, the 11th track, Road Design. And he attacked um, Zimbabwe's former president, Mugabe, viciously. And Nas was the one who did the lyrics, President Mugabe um, turning guns on his own people in Zimbabwe, doing ish to make the Pope seem godly. So M1, Mutulu um, Olubala, the internationally acclaimed hip-hop group Dead Prez, got in touch with us. And he talked about doing um, a song. And what initially was a song ended up being, between 2013 and 2016, three albums of music as part of a campaign called the Battle Croc of Cuba-Zimbabwe campaign. And it was artists from all over the world, multi-genre, cross-generational, 
who made music calling for the lifting of the blockade on Cuba and the lifting of the sanctions on Zimbabwe. And we had the honor of performing four years ago for the International Committee Day with Solidarity for Cuban Five. That year, Washington, D.C. was the venue. So we had a concert featuring all the artists that were locally based when the show was closed by Dead Press. Some of the artists that contributed to that project was the revolutionary youth group Native Son, who was called the Dead Press of England. We had Bituaya, which is the number one hip-hop group in Venezuela, which has a, they have a very Yoruba feel to their music. They're inspired by the Santeria tradition. We had one of the last poets on the song. Um, we had um, some gospel, jazz, reggae, virtually every genre of music you can think of. And for people who would be interested in listening to that who are not familiar with it, they can go to a link, battlecubazim.wordpress.com, battlecubazim.wordpress.com. The music is not for sale. It's free. And you'll be able to hear the music we did. And this was our way of using culture and art to bring attention to um, a political issue of the most extreme importance. So we were happy that we were able to do it. And when you look at it in the context of contribution, it shows the evolution of the African cultural expression. In 1977 at the Festac Conference, Akhmed Sikwetere told the people to be part of the African revolution is not enough to write a revolutionary song. You must fashion the songs with the people and the songs will come of themselves and by themselves. And what that taught us, um, Brother Africa, is that we must make a distinction between artists whose art has a message and artists whose art is attached to a cause. And when we take a look at the fact that this blockade on Cuba, which is a follow-up to the failed Bay of Pigs invasion and has been in existence since 1962, and the whole world rallies, there's an international movement to end that blockade, but inside the borders of the United States, Sometimes um, there's some stagnation. There's a lack of um, innovative um, methodology to intensify the effort. So we thought that um, doing that project would be an excellent way to deal with that. And in Zimbabwe, in, in English, Zimbabwe means the people of stone. And you look at their contributions to stone sculpture and African architecture. But if you ever spend time in Zimbabwe and you look at the different celebrations they have, whether you look at the Heroes Day celebration, you look at the Independence Day celebration, you look at what they call Unity Day, where they celebrate in December of 1987 when ZANU and ZAPU merged to become one political party. Everything they do, they have a gala, and you have nearly 24 hours of local musicians who perform to show their patriotism to their beloved nation. So Zimbabwe is also called the land of musicians. So we were so glad that we were able to collaborate with Zimbabwean artists who are true patriots to um, bring attention to the sanctions on Zimbabwe as well as the sanctions on um, Cuba. And we were so delighted that the Venezuelans got involved in the project as they have those same sanctions hanging over them at this particular juncture. So, yes, we were able to do that And in addition to doing the plays that we've done. Oh, and in relationship to mass emphasis, the play we did, 1925, this African Liberation Day, was also performed in the Congo by young people in the Congo simultaneously, thanks to our comrade uh, Maurice Carney and the Friends of the Congo for making that happen. And that's the second time that they performed something while we were performing it here in Washington. So we were very happy about that. And we've had some very um, delightful experiences. Um, when we did the play um, three years ago, 
for the Global African Children's Festival about the Osajifo and Thomas Sankara. Thomas Sankara's brother, Paul Sankara, and a couple of relatives were there. So to put that play on in front of them, it was the ultimate experience, a very humbling thrill for us. And um, Sister Judy Carmichael, Brother Kwame's biological sister, she was also there because we were honoring Kwame posthumously, and Brother Mukasa Dada was there, and we were honoring them for introducing the black power concept to their generation, first propagated by Frederick Douglass, later championed by Richard Wright in his book Black Power, dedicated to Nkrumah. So we've had so many experiences. As a matter of fact, I had a phone call today from the widow of Julian Mayfield, who is making arrangements for our plays to be performed in Guyana. So we've we've had some, uh, and we're supposed to, at some point when we get to Cuba, we're going to sign a memorandum of understanding with La Colmonita. To your listeners who don't know what that is, that's the National Theater Ensemble for Cuban Youth in Cuba that's part of the Cuban Revolution. So once they saw us perform a few years ago, they felt that this should be the first children's to children's exchange that they've had with um, the so-called African-American community in the United, inside the United States borders. So these are just some of the experiences that we've had through doing this type of work. And the children are getting stronger, they're getting better, they're getting more comfortable. And we really are at this juncture focusing on certain skills that they already possess as we understand that Africa, one of Africa's biggest challenges is the brain drain. Our best lawyers, don't work in Burkina Faso, they don't work in Senegal, they don't work in Nigeria, they don't work in Ghana, they work in France, they work in Amsterdam, they work in Switzerland, they work in New York. So um, this, so give, getting a chance to see the skills that the young people have and seeing if we can utilize those skills to come up with concrete, practical things that can be done to create the climate and the milieu for what the objectives that we're seeking to achieve on the political front. We must continue to pursue ideological clarity, but not at the expense of the bastardization of methodology. We cannot be strategically and tactically bankrupt or strategically and tactically hesitant as organizers. Okay, Brother Obi, before we take our station break, can you quickly let our listening audience know how can they get a copy of this tribute, mixtape by Kwame, and your other works? They can um they can go to um it, it's on the internet but it's posted on the Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company page. Um, I will have um, DJ Dash and Xavier's mom. I don't have it in front of me right now, but their Facebook page as well. Um, it's where people will be able to, and their YouTube page is also. Um, we will make that available to you, Brother Africa, so you can make that available to the public. So people can have access to it. It's in Dropbox format, so um, people will be able to open it. And also, um, last, you know, lastly, um, another important point. Yeah, go ahead. You guys are still on. Oh, good. Yeah, tell them. um, Tell them you. Yes. YouTube page is Power Jams DJs Jams with an S and DJs with an S. And it's also available on eventstreamteam.com. You can also see other mass emphasis plays there as well. In their entirety. In their entirety. Yes, and uh, that's their lovely um, mother in the background, who whose voice that is on the poem at the end of the mixtape. 
as we um the poem that we wrote for Kwame for the play we did, that's at the end of the mixtape. So and it's called Organize, Organize, Organize. So that's who contributed to that. So um yes, um we thank you all for um giving us the opportunity to share a little bit about our work today. And um we look to um actually there's some people in Richmond right there in your neck of the woods, Brother Africa who are talking about us getting involved with the young people down there. And um, our goal is to do two things, either start a branch of mass emphasis in different areas throughout the African world, or to collaborate with youth ensembles that already exist that are on the same path we're on. And we see this as an instrument uh, in the process of decolonization, making our cultural and political expression synonymous. That And we feel that if vehicles like that are developed and maintained, not only are we going to empower the young people, but we're going to create a climate where um, people understand that every idea they execute, articulate history, obligates them to execute. As we continue to have that disparity between theory and practice, as Asajj for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah told us so long ago, Practice without thought is blind. Thought without action is empty. And right now, too many people are hiding behind what they perceive to be ideological purity without having to put their ideas to the test. So we want to be the alternative to that. And lastly, um, I remember being in Newark seven years ago with Raz Baraka when he was a city councilman, now the mayor of Newark. And we were sitting on the corner. They do a 24-hour moratorium to stop uh, violence amongst ourselves, um, self-inflicted violence amongst African people. Because for those of you who've been following Newark, they have a major blood crit problem, arguably worse than Los Angeles at this point. And so we're on the corner sitting on the stoop, and they're showing the Black Power mixtape from a few years ago. And, uh, you know, they want to get our take on it, but we're quiet. And... um, they were like, oh, Lord, you're going to pick it apart. And I said, no, actually not the case. We have been trained that if you feel something that has been contributed to the people lacks, history obligates you to create an alternative. So the initial goal was to do an audio tape. But when um, DJ Dash and Xavier told me that they had the ability to do a visual as, and an audio together, the answer was right there. And we're so pleased that it met the satisfaction of so many people. And um, at the end of the day, that, like you said, that's all it's about, uh, especially at this juncture where um, being a social critic is so fashionable and so in vogue. It's time to go ahead and show what we have the ability to offer to the masses practically. And as part of the process to intensify our genuine resistance in every way we can. And yesterday they had a Pan-African Festival in D.C. for the second year in a row, and when the Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company performed, the first five minutes was letting people hear a five-minute sample of the work of DJ Dash and um, Xavier. Okay, excellent. At this point in time, to listen to the audience, you listen to Africa on the Move. We're going to pause for the call, so when we come back, you know, Brother Opie wears many hats. We like to get some of his analysis and experiences on the present status of the Pan African movement. 
So we're going to pause for this cause and we'll be right back. You'll listen to Africa on the Moon. relationship. 
For example, a few months ago, you all are well aware of Cyclone Adai and how it ravaged through Mozambique, ravaged through Malawi, and ravaged through Zimbabwe. So initially, um, because we already have a project in place through the Zimbabwe-Cuba Friendship Association, I'm the external relations officer to that organization, we've had a project that we've been pushing because in 2001, 2002, the late Comandante Fidel Castro, their great champion of humanity, said that if resources were ever available, Cuba would deploy 4,000 HIV-AIDS doctors, researchers, and specialists to Africa, and they would remain in Africa until they eradicated HIV-AIDS. And um, we feel that um, we're at a position to um, create a groundswell where those of us in the diaspora who are in a position to finance that effort, we should not hesitate to do so. So we're working on that front. But we recognize that sometimes when you have natural disasters and calamities, you have um, people who will respond to that as opposed to a long-term project. So um, when we were contacted by an organization based in D.C. called Appeal, who we understand have invited you to D.C. in the next couple of weeks, um, we were able to organize a benefit in D.C. where we raised money for the cyclone victims. But it was done because we recognized that we're looking at the humanitarian, industri- the humanitarian aid industrial intelligence complex, which at this juncture is just as crippling to the African Revolution as the military-industrial intelligence police complex was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, now called Homeland Security. Because when you take a look at the United States Agency for International Development and the influence that they command, they dictate the sister city uh, efforts inside United States borders. They screen the African investors and business people who want to come on the ground and invest in this country. They screen what is done through the U.S. Africa Business Center, which is now the African branch of the United States Chamber of Commerce. They um, dictate uh, how humanitarian aid is channeled and funneled to the African continent. So we figured that since Southern Africa is the most stable part of Africa at this juncture, governmentally speaking, this is the best way to begin to go to war with that evil entity. We focus on the National Endowment for Democracy, yes. We focus on uh, the National Democratic Institute, yes. We focus on the International Republican Institute, yes. But the United States Agency for International Development, under the guise of humanitarianism, is much more genocidal because of this dynamic of bribery. So we figured that that project, that movement that we've created, so there there were efforts organized in St. Louis, They were efforts organized in other parts of Virginia. They were efforts organized in Dallas. They were efforts organized in New York. They were efforts organized in New Jersey. And there's a willingness. And the Namibian ambassador, who at this juncture, for the next few weeks anyway, Namibia chaired SADC, the Southern African Development Community, this year, they said they're taking a light at the end of the tunnel approach. And when we take a look at um, the fact that George Bush, the son, has become a born-again humanitarian and is set himself up in Africa where his foundation is doing um, cervical um, tests for cervical cancer with women in Zambia and Tanzania. And you have African heads of state saying that he's done more for Africa than any other U.S. head of state before or after him. 
you see the dynamic of manipulation in place. And so we say to ourselves, we're in a position to finance Cuba's medical efforts in Africa right now. And so we should not hesitate to do that. And it would be a compliment to the work for Pastors for Peace and IFCO that they do to Cuba directly. Why can't we aid Cuba's efforts in Zimbabwe? Why can't we aid Cuba's efforts in Ethiopia? Why can't we aid Cuba's efforts throughout West Africa? This is a very creative strategy, and I think that it's something that we can actually execute. So these, are, so we see a lot of enthusiasm around that. We feel that right now the time is right, climate is right for urban rebellions. We feel the climate is right for mass protests. You have this year of return movement, for example, in Ghana. The current president of Ghana, Akufa Addo, his family is anti-Nkrumahist in tradition. His great uncle, Atta, was, um, started the first opposition party to the Convention People's Party in Ghana, and his uncle ran against Nkrumah when the CPP changed the constitution from having a prime minister to a president. So, um, and he is very chummy, very close to Rosa Whitaker. For your listeners who don't know who Rosa Whitaker is, She's the first U.S. diplomat to become a trade officer, and she wrote what's called the African Growth and Opportunity Act. They call her the mother of AGOA, and it is through her that the U.S. Africa Business Center, which we said is a component of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, was created. And from that, the Clinton administration created the, um, the CCA, um, the main economic organization that is used as the platform for Fortune 500 companies to continue the tradition of rape, plunder, and stealing on the African continent. So we feel at this moment that is something that we need to look to very carefully. Of course, um, we want to, since we were last on with you guys, Eritrea got the sanctions lifted off of them. And those of us who've been involved in the movements to get sanctions lifted on Zimbabwe, get sanctions lifted on Cuba, and get sanctions lifted on Venezuela. It's a very valuable lesson because Eritrea does not enjoy the solidarity that Cuba does, does not enjoy the solidarity that Palestine does, does not enjoy the solidarity that Venezuela does, and almost by themselves, very similar to the way that they fought their 30-year guerrilla struggle, shielded from the world with the exception of those of us who had the gumption to give them the solidarity and camaraderie that history obligated us to give to them. Only those of us who were involved in that process should feel enthusiastic to share in that monumental victory. So we, we, we're, we're watching these things happen. You're watching a more um, focus on Zionism. We have made an appeal to the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan whenever he's ready to come to Washington, D.C., and we can finally have a forum on the question of Zionism. Because when we we were part of the young contingent, the babies, if you will, that's the first work we did with Kwame Ture directly when we were involved in the Pan-African Student Youth Movement. We were the second youth contingent to join the Worldwide African Anti-Zionist Front, which was created in Libya in 1990. And we know that, um, interestingly enough, so we got to see a lot of things. So we know that the Nation of Islam never joined that front, but our position is the same as it was when we were in our 20s. Zionism is a direct enemy of African people. Palestinian solidarity is just putting your feet, getting your feet wet a little bit. It's the tip of the iceberg. And while we're obligated to give the Palestinians our unconditional support, we must make Zionist Israel answer for the bombing of Egypt slash Kenya. 
We must make Zionist Israel answer for trying to undermine Algeria and Tunisia's path towards self-determination. We must make Zionist Israel answer for their military and diplomatic aid to the Germans in Namibia, the Portuguese in Angola and Mozambique, and the British in Zimbabwe and Zambia. So we're in a better position now to push for that to actually happen. When it comes to police terrorism within the borders of the United States, we are in a better position to turn that movement into a movement against um, military repression and violence where imperialism exists all over the world. Because when Colin Kaepernick took the knee dealing with the police but was gun-shy when the imperialist media apparatus asked him what about the military, we knew that that still put us in the best position because we're not obligated by history to stop the police from policing us in D.C., policing us in Ferguson, policing us in Baltimore, policing us in Chicago, policing us in Oakland, but we must make sure that they don't police us in Ghana, don't police us in Zimbabwe, don't police us in Grenada, don't police us in Colombia, South America, don't police us in Panama, and we're in a better position to do that work. And But the work must come authentically from us. That work must be indigenous. We cannot have African faces and who affronts for white liberal entities who are attempting to take that up, especially if they have George Soros' money behind them, because you end up getting hypocrisy and fraud. For example, you have the Institute for Policy Studies, which is a front for George Soros, and you have um, Danny Glover and James Early talking about Venezuela, but at the same time, Moses Niam, who is the brains behind Juan Guiado in Venezuela, you have him. Um, he's on the Open Society's board of directors. So how can George Soros be connected to an organization like IPS that's saying that they're trying to stop the regime change agenda of U.S. imperialism in Venezuela, but at the same time on his board is Moses Niam, who is the brains behind Guiardo, who is the brains behind trying to get Venezuela forced out of the OAS. That is something that needs to be answered. And we know that there are certain entities who are employed by OA, um, IPS who get their bread butted by IPS who occasionally, when it's convenient for them, will take shots at Zimbabwe. So we say to them, if you're going to talk about Zimbabwe, begin the conversation with breaking why you should, you're not comfortable breaking ties with George Soros, not just on the Venezuela, exposing his double dipping on the Zimbabwe on the Venezuela question, but the fact that George Soros is financing three hundred and fifty of the four hundred civil society groups in Zimbabwe working for regime change. And it do you have the courage to even put your job on the line to say that you're willing to walk away from your job if George Soros does not pull his blood money outside out of um Zimbabwe and stop double dipping on the question of Venezuela. Either he's with Danny Glover and James Early or he's with Moses Neon. Which one is it going to be? You can't be a whore and a housewife at the same time. So that's what we say about So we're in a position to magnify these contradictions. We're in a position to do more work built around that. So to answer the question, Brother Africa, we feel very good about the Pan-African movement. And we're in a better position to implement the things we want to see happen as we approach 50 years old than we were in the position when we were in our early 20s working with Kwame Ture and many others who trained us to get us to the point that we're at today. Okay, Brother, I hope we're going to turn you on to some of our panelists. They may have a question or comments they'd like to 
raise with you and get your expertise. Brother Haki, we bring you in. The, the, the mic is yours. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things, you know, when we talk about the manipulation of billionaires, one of the problems, you know, from a strategic point of view, is that they've been very instrumental in terms of creating these organizations so as to facilitate this whole question around identity politics. So a lot of the situation where all these competing identities are advocating for their particular cause, it ensures that people mm-hmm. never come to the realization in terms of what the real problem is. Now, my question mm-hmm. is this. In, in terms of competing against that, uh, you know, one of the things is that, you know, visibility plays a big part in terms of getting the message out. And so when we organize, you know, we try to spread the mm-hmm. message to the extent we can. But the question is, mm-hmm. you know, given given that background, what can we do realistically in terms of trying to impact on folks when you got this this, this overwhelming um, uh, sensation, well, not over, sensation, but this overwhelming um, force of, of uh, reactionary individuals with wealth uh, who facilitate mm-hmm. all these groups for the purpose of dividing folks. So what really can we do? What do you think? Oh, um, I, I think that uh, we take the guerrilla approach that we always have. One of the most beautiful characteristics of history itself is the challenges that it imposes. So we accept the challenge, as you saw um, now in the field, in the area of art, as you probably know. They, the Zionists control all the artistic outlets that one would seek to get financing for. Most of the drumming and dancing ensembles you see, the full scale, they have to go in a back room with the Zionists in order to be able to put their productions on. The Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company is self-determining. We haven't even applied for a grant to date. We pay out of our own pockets to put on these productions. And the people that are seeing the productions, that's one of the first things they ask. Where does the funding come from? And we smack on our pockets at the expense of putting a bruise in our thighs just to make that point hit home for people. So I think that it's just a question of us um, looking at what appeals to the masses of our people right now and developing projects and campaigns in that initiative. I, I think that um, people mistaken visibility for um, productivity. Some of the best things going on now are not as visible, but they're having monumental impact, even though people may not know where the influences come. Um, we're not competing with any of these entities that were created to be distractions, to divert attention away from what is being done and what needs to be done. So that's not a problem for us. Um, we understand that the human resource is the most valuable. We understand in our movement this dynamic is the same. Um, our, the human resources are um, limited, but we depend on our creativity, our ingenuity, to be able to create things that the masses feel comfortable in helping build, helping expand on, helping contribute to. And as long as we take that approach, the only thing that you already know, which history teaches us, and Kwame Ture used to say this to us all the time when he felt that we were being impatient, he would say that the privilege of witnessing victory is something that many in our struggle have not been afforded. Medgar Evers did not live to see the Voting Rights Act of 64 and the Civil the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65 signed into existence. Josiah Tongogara did more on the battlefield to liberate Zimbabwe than any guerrilla fighter. He dies in a car crash December 26, 1979. Zimbabwe is liberated April 18, 1980. 
that great son of Africa, Milcar Cabral, did not live to see Guinea-Bissau's flag go up and Portuguese colonialism's flag come down. So the realization that we've accepted a long time ago is the ultimate victory, one unified socialist Africa with Africans all over the world feeling invested in that process. We probably won't live to see that, but it inspires us to work harder every second, every minute, every hour. No problem at all. Keep the challenges coming. We're going to embrace them. Quick response, Brother Aki. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I hear you. I hear you, Brother. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very complex, very, very intricate problem in terms of the whole question around how we organize and methodology we employ in terms of organizing. Because one of the things, when mm-hmm. we talk about the subconscious versus the conscious, uh, one of the things that we understand in terms of just how the mind operates, that often certain certain um, certain mindsets are more predisposed to self-propaganda as opposed to other mindsets. And so, of course, it behooves us to create a situation where, you know, we can uh, impose ideas to the extent that it has an impact in terms of being able to filter, you know, those propaganda ideas that come to the head that begin to make sense okay. in terms of, you know, just how erroneous these ideas are. But, of course, that's mm. all theoretical. And, and, and one of the things in terms yes. of the question of visibility, why that is so important, is because, you know, it does impact in terms of the way people think. So what I'm thinking is that in terms of, you know, really making an impact, I'm a strong advocate in terms of, you know, us moving from um, those those organizers in America, those Africans born in America, moving from America to Africa to set up bases in Africa. I think the impact would be much greater. And I think also uh, that there's much greater hunger for in terms of what's going on because there's a certain amount of credibility you have in terms of being born here that you do understand the, the, the intimacies in terms of society, the system, and less likely to mm-hmm. be, you know, be dismissed by those corrupt forces on the continent who like to claim that the West is the best place in the world. So I think that strategically, I think the problem for me, the, what the struggle has to be in terms of moving from here and setting up bases in Africa. So what is your response? To setting that? up, you said setting up, you said setting up bases. Uh, you said you said the to, word you said the word institutions bases or business. Moving move, move to Africa and set up institutions in Africa. Yeah. Oh, um, well well definitely. I mean, but right now, this is what's going on though. Um, as more people and we say to our people, man, when it comes to going home, may your passports have more stamps than Takachi six nine and Lil Wayne have tattoos. And, you know, for people who know we're talking to a demographic of children when we talk about that because we know that that's who they're familiar with. It comes down to when they get to Africa, like you said, a base. That's assuming that they're connected to struggle. But if people are going to Africa to serve the agenda of imperialism, but what it's going to do, Kwame Ture said, if the African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt, that means that our class struggle will be the most intense. So what you're witnessing is you're going to see an intent, the intensification of class struggle because of the dynamic you, you talked about. So in Ghana, for example, when you have Africans who are going there who don't have a problem with uh, the working under the guise of the U.S. Africa Business Center, working under the guise of the um, Chamber of Commerce, not dealing with the question of AFRICOM, not dealing with... Um, the U.S. embassies, the United States, Africa policy. What happens is, but the fact that they're in Africa, 
they'll get a chance to see it. So the strategy is going to backfire. And we were at a Pan-African Festival yesterday, and we told them when the Africans that you that are born there, who are the ones that you're going to recruit to be your maids, to be your chauffeurs, to be your gardeners, when they take to the streets against neocolonialism, you have an option. You're either going to get in the streets with them and fight, or you're going to run faster than Hussein Bolt to the U.S. Embassy. So it's up to them. So, But what's going to happen is that contradiction is going to get heightened right there in Africa because at this particular juncture, you, you, if you're around young people and you're watching certain language and certain ideas being um, discussed and exchanged, our young people are focusing on the accumulation of wealth. And that is because they have been taught by the capitalist system that poverty is something you escape, not something that you eliminate. And when Dr. King, um, when that bullet by the FBI and CIA was headed for his skull at the Lorraine Motel, 7.01 p.m. um, Central Time in Memphis, Tennessee, he was talking about a radical redistribution of wealth. So ideologically, the play we just did, we had the children get up and do the Fanon quote from the Wretched of the Earth, my favorite one. Wealth is not the product of labor, but the result, wealth is not the fruit of labor, but the result of organized protected robbery. And so what's going on is as there, so when your, your preoccupation becomes accumulating wealth, then your number one objective is preserving the wealth. That's why many of our entertainers now think that being a mascot and a lapdog for Fortune 500 companies has something to do with self-determination. So the fact that we are discussing wealth more, there is going to be a question over are we dealing with wealth redistribution or are we dealing with accumulating it? So we feel very good being in the position we're in, in the classroom, the demographic that we're working with, we're focusing on children K through 12. From an organizational vantage point, what does that do? It gives us a chance to organize with more women because when you you work with people's children, you automatically have access to the mother, to the aunt, to the grandmother, and to the men of quality, the men who are still in the lives of children. So before you know it, you're now organizing workers, you're organizing students, and it, it, it changes certain organizational dynamics. And our process is we don't teach to our children, we teach through our children. So that's the propaganda angle, the way we deal with that. So that's the approach we take. So as more people are going to Africa, it, it, lastly, this is the dynamic. If they're going to Nigeria, they're either going to embrace the legacy of Nandi Azikwe, leader of the anti-colonial movement in Nigeria, or they're trying to be the next Alik Dangote, the Nigerian business magnate who's the richest man in Africa. If they're going to Angola, if they're women, they're either going to be like Teodoro Gomez, an organization of Angola women, which was the women's wing of MP- is the women's wing of MPLA, or they're going to be like the daughter of Dos Santos, who's the first billionaire woman in Africa. So the, so the climate is set to intensify the class struggle in Africa. And as Secretary Ray taught us, Pan-Africanism is class struggle. So while the enemy is Pan-Africanizing neocolonialism, we'll be Pan-Africanizing the class struggle. And the lines are drawn. Okay, let's go to our next panelist. Brother Anthony, the mic is yours. Oh, yeah. Uh, Obi, a couple of um, uh, uh, observations I would like to ask of you. Concerning one, um, uh, let's see, the uh, 
the 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 U the U.S. imperialist destabilization of Libya and the ramifications mm-hmm. that is causing in primarily in northern and west Africa, but uh, probably having a ripple effect throughout the African continent, and also mm-hmm. the heavy U.S. presence of Africom in Africa, in terms mm-hmm. of uh, you know how that's impeding. But also, ironically, maybe um, you know, helping to achieve Pan-Africanism by mm-hmm. uh, by bringing Africans from different ethnic groups close together, since they're in the same lot, so to speak. Okay. Uh, well, in terms of Africom, um, when we talk about it, I think that um, there are a couple of things that we ignore. Um, number one, what is it a response to? And let's just go back to Obama. Obama's um, statement at his first inauguration. He said, the might of our military must be matched by the strength of our diplomacy. So what, this meant, so what that means is in, country, in places in the world where the climate is not conducive to do what your, culture, what your culture is set up to do, the culture of the United States is to be militaristic is to be genocidal, is to be violent, is to be repressive, is to be fascist. But when that does not work, they will use diplomatic means, diplomatic resources to starve people to death. So, But AFRICOM, when you look at it, you have to go back to the 1990s. When we were in the streets, um, when we brought the United States to a complete halt during the Rodney King Rebellion, we let it be known, though, as young people, this was in harmony and concert with the African resistance on the continent where military neocolonialism was shown the door. Mobutu taken down in the Congo. Samuel Doe taken down in Liberia. Um, Musa Chore in Mali taken down. Mengistu um, taken down. Um, Abacha and Babanga in Nigeria taken down. Um, UNITA and Angola destabilized. Renamo and Mozambique destabilized militarily. So we knew that they would come back with something else. But most of their, so we know that, um, and as a matter of fact, in our conversations with our Nigerian sisters and brothers, we asked them how could they let um, Bukha Haram be used as a subterfuge to remilitarize Nigeria, which ultimately is to remilitarize Africa. However, um, with that being said, as we have said on numerous occasions, they are examples of African revolutionary forces who we embrace who have a military background, but they did not um, govern their country militaristically. Gamal Abdel Nasser has a military background. Thomas Sankara has a military background. Josiah Tongogara has a military background. Ahmed Bembele in Algeria had a military background. Gaddafi had a military background. But they were political. But they were political. So um, we understand those dynamics. We're more concerned with the humanitarian aid industrial intelligence police complex, if you will, because when you look at the influence that the United States Agency for International Development has created the same year that the Peace Corps was created, and you look at just how they call shots in Africa and you look at the fact that they're in every United States embassy in Africa, and you look at the hearings that they hold in Congress and the Senate 
talking about the formulation of Africa policy. You look at um, how they are trying to paint this cloud over China, that China's the new imperialist. That's something um, very important. In terms of Libya, um, one of the things that breaks our heart, Libya is close to my heart for on an individual level because um, many people have forgotten this, but in the early 1970s, one of the first Pan-African overtures that um, Muammar Gaddafi, leader of the Jamahariya, made was a call for one African television station and one African radio station because he felt the media could be an instrument very important to the decolonization process. At the time, my father was the director of ECBS in Nigeria, and he had the chance to go to see him. And uh, when he went to see him, um, he remembered my father from the Black Power Movement in London and stuff. So, And then, um, like I said, we were very young when we were part of the Worldwide African Anti-Zionist Front. But we have to talk about the concessions that Gaddafi was pressured by the Mataba to make. As a matter of fact, um, in one of the meetings we had with Brother Kwame Ture, where we were doing a briefing on the Worldwide African Anti-Zionist Front, which he would do with all member organizations when he came from Guinea, in 1995, in my apartment, he told us that Gaddafi was losing support internally in Libya. And we need to rally around him stronger than ever before. So then when you began to see certain concessions that he made, turning over his files to the U.S. government and the European Union government, being cozy with Tony Blair, um, we realized um, allowing a Libyan intersection to be at the Watergate Hotel, we know that when governments and leaders of a revolutionary background and pedigree um, make certain diplomatic concessions with imperialism, that's when you're vulnerable for regime change. So when he showed up at the United Nations for the first time and spent two hours, when you're only given 20 minutes, talking about assassinations, he was conveying a message to the world that he had reason to believe that he was next on their list. And um, so we learned a lot from that situation. We, we ex- it exposed the opportunism in our community where They were people who claimed to love Africa, claimed to have an undying allegiance to Africa. But at the time that the Obama administration, um, on the leash of NATO, bombed Libya for seven months in a row, 24-7, all of a sudden we became experts on our captivity at the expense of Arabs centuries ago. That became the time to talk about that. So we recognize that it supports our outlook on Africa that Northern Africa is the most isolated region of Africa. Um, Eastern Africa is the most chaotic region of Africa. West Africa is the most corrupt region of Africa, governmentally speaking. And Southern Africa is the most stable part. But we're very enthusiastic with the peace treaty between Ethiopia and Eritrea, that our fortunes are being reversed in a positive manner in East Africa. And the fact that the AFRICOM satellite in Africa is in Djibouti, The fact that Ethiopia and Eritrea have closed ranks. Hopefully Sudan follows suit. Hopefully Somalia follows suit. We have some very um, bright days ahead to look forward to, but not because of the guilt of the enemy, but because of the intensity of our unified resistance. Mm. Any follow-up, Brother Anthony? Um, y- yes, um, let's see, um, you know, as, uh, uh, you know, Kwame Ture pointed out, uh, 
you know, uh, the class struggle is going to intensify, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for the African revolution to advance. And uh, yeah. I think history is proving that to, to be true. Oh, it's going to take no time to see that, it. though. Hey, look here. As we're sitting here having this conversation, according to Forbes magazine, there are 2,360 billionaires whose estimated worth is $9 trillion. And there are one billion hungry people on the planet at the same time. And four children in Africa die of hunger every hour. So the gap between the wealthy and the impoverished is wider than it's ever been in the history of the human race. So that in itself creates an atmosphere. It creates a yearning for the sharing of wealth. And also you have to factor in that the number one discussion on the world stage for the last 10, 15 years has been over what? What are called millennium, millennial development goals, millennium development goals, which are education, healthcare, housing, and clean drinking water. And as we know, the countries in the world that have addressed that are the countries in Africa that have been self-determining. You're talking about Eritrea. Oh, yeah, and let's look at this in the context of the United States Agency for International Development. You see that um, Cuba, Venezuela, uh, Suriname, uh, Bolivia are Mm -hmm. are part of what's called the ALBA Nations, the Bolivarian Alliance of Our Americans. They came forward six years ago and said that the United States Agency for International Development should be pushed out of every country in the Americas. Right around the same time, Vladimir Putin expelled them from Russia. But the first country to ever expel them was Eritrea in 2005 under the leadership of Esaias Werke, O.F. Werke and the EPLF. And so this let the world know, and interestingly enough, you all remember in Cuba a few years ago before Barack Obama took his high-profile field trip to Cuba, you had the uh, United States Agency for International Development officers got busted in Cuba for under the guise of being part of an HIV-AIDS forum they were encouraging health practitioners to rise up against the revolution, and Cuba immediately sent them to the airport and threw them the hell out of the country. So what we're seeing is there's more discussion about the question of wealth. And remember, Agenda 2063, which is the neocolonialist blueprint by neocolonialist African nations for what Africa should look like in 2063, and the research comes from the Corporate Council on Africa, which was created which was the instrument created to implement the African Growth and Opportunity Act. They've got it so streamlined, brothers. They know how many Africans have cell phones, how many Africans, how many, how many Africans will um, profit from investing in gold, how many Africans will um, invest in tobacco. This is their blueprint for what they call economic empowerment. And when the Obama administration organized the Uh, business summit they had in Washington five years ago, Eritrea was excluded, Sudan was excluded, and Zimbabwe was excluded. And and you see a few weeks ago, Zimbabwe has talked about indigenizing their dollar to shield themselves as they're dealing with the hardship of sanctions, the daily hardship of sanctions. So you're you're just watching, um, and um, I remember the former, the late now national hero, Dr. Nathan Shamirira, one of the most brilliant comrades I've met in my nearly 30 years of struggle. He was the Secretary of Information for ZANU-PF. He said the best thing about this land reclamation program in Zimbabwe is it's going to help us return to our socialist roots. 
So the climate for socialism is stronger than it's ever been before. But we know that um, it's only right that as they're trying to take the African continent through a rites of passage and being comfortably exploited middle-class people, the the best people to recruit to carry that out are the so-called African-Americans who are well-trained in being complicit, exploited, comfortable, upper-middle-class people while their labor is exploited every day and their people are dehumanized every day. So because we haven't dealt with class struggle on that level, and remember, this is going on while you have a group called the Moral Monday Movement led by, led by Reverend Willie Barber, who is who ignited the Poor People's Campaign about a year and a half ago. But the dilemma that he's having is how the hell can rich people lead a poor people's movement? And since the majority of uh, the democratic machine in the African community, formerly known as the Civil Rights Movement, who have allowed the Civil Rights Movement to be uh, reinvented into a lobby group inside the Democratic Party, you have a bunch of millionaires leading that movement. How can the millionaires speak for the poor? The majority of civil rights spokespeople are millionaires or have million-dollar budgets. They don't live like our people. They don't deal with the daily challenges our people deal with. But on the question of poverty, they can speak for our people. On the question of racism, every African can speak to it. But on the question of poverty, only poor Africans can speak to it. Okay, let's move to our next panelist, Brother Jabari. Your question or comment? Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Um, my question for our guest is, why is it that despite there being obvious evidence of the Obama administration enabling the expansion of neocolonialism at a rapid pace in Africa that for some reason people of color, um, especially diasporic people of color, seem to not be willing to either do the research or to give him a pass even if people try to convey the information to him. So what is it about the propaganda that enables people to continue to fall for the hype? Um, well, I, I think it just goes back to um, our history and our fascination with uh, bourgeois imperialist politics. Um, I do. I did a um, case study with my students, and uh, I asked them to ask their parents if uh, Barack Obama was a Republican, would they have voted for him? Ninety-eight percent of them said no. So what that shows you is that our people did not vote for him because of his African blood. That was the icing on the cake, the cherry on the sundae. He was a Democrat who happened to be of African ancestry. That's number one. And so that's the first thing. And we're talking about a stranglehold, Brother Jabari, that has existed since 1912. Social studies books used in imperialist classrooms inaccurately say that African voting for the Democrats started in 1945. In 1912, 500,000 Africans who could vote voted for Woodrow Wilson a white supremacist who, when he was the president of Princeton University, refused to desegregate Princeton, segregated the government buildings in Washington, D.C., and showed the original birth of the nation on the White House lawn. But, and Du Bois writes him a letter in 1913 about attempting to manipulate the African vote. 
So we've been embroiled, and at every phase of our existence, the the Democratic Party has shown their commitment to paternalism with the aim of trampling African resistance. Did Eleanor Roosevelt, while she was on the board of directors of the NAACP, attempt to sabotage the, the appeal Du Bois submitted to the United Nations? We know that this happened. We know that Dr. King is the only civil, so-called civil rights leader of out of our community, going back to the days of Sojourner Truth, going back to the days of Frederick Douglass, going back to the days of Mary McLeod Bethune, who, who, who abandoned his White House access to stand with SNCC on the question of Vietnam. Um, at a point right now where um, our people are looking at people like Bernie Sanders, you have to admit Bernie Sanders is consistent. On the, on, our, on the reparations question, he shows that he's nothing but a racist pig like the rest of them. And when he was a congressman, when the Zimbabwe Democracy and Economic Recovery Act was imposed in 2001, the sanctions on Zimbabwe, he voted in favor of those sanctions. So he's consistent in the United States. He doesn't feel Africans should be empowered on the African continent. He doesn't feel Africans should be empowered. So I think that when we talk about Obama in the context of the Democratic Party, our people will be faced, be forced to face the music. And that's why at this point working with children is important because when we're working with children, we convey the message to, our, to the masses that social science deserves the same courtesy as math and natural science. You cannot give our people uh, an accurate scientific experiment and formula. You cannot tell them that one plus one equals a million. So in that same vein, but when it comes to history, when it comes to sociology, when it comes to philosophy, when it comes to psychology, we let opinions run wild. So we're, 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 we're moving towards that goal. So, but the initial answer, we must talk about Obama in the context of the Democratic Party, not the fact that he's a half-white liberal. And then follow-up, follow Brother Jabari. Okay. The only additional comment I add to what Brother Obi shared was that um, he mentioned how Woodrow Wilson was such a big um, proponent of the movie Birth of a Nation. Woodrow Wilson was also quoted saying that it was history rewritten in lightning. So Democratic Party is supporting ideologues of that nature. What does that say yeah. about how it thinks about people of color? Exactly. He, and, and, he, and he's exactly correct. And real quickly on Obama. We have to discuss them in the context of, of the issues. Um, when he was a senator, he wrote Bush a letter when he was the lowest-ranking member on the, commi- on the um, Committee of Foreign Relations in the Senate not to lift the uh, sanctions on Zimbabwe till the dark cloud of Robert Mugabe was ousted from power. This is what he did as a senator. When he campaigned the first time, um, he spoke in Miami to the son of Jorge Moscanosa and the Cuban-American National Foundation and he said in his 47 years, Cuba's never known democracy, has never known human rights. But then all of a sudden, when Fortune 500 business people forced him to go to Cuba, that's what he went for before he exited office. So a lot of times when we're discussing him, it cannot be based on sentiment. It cannot be based on countering sentiment. It has to be on the naked truth and the scientific facts that are irrefutable. And once we're able to do that, our people will uh, eventually accept that. But you have to also understand uh, many of our people were in hibernation during the eight years, and they slept on a mattress uh, where they were rocked to sleep by the lullaby that post-racism USA had 
been ushered into existence. So um, we understand why they're talking about Trump, tough about Trump. It's a knee-jerk reaction to being disappointed for eight years or being under in hibernation or under hypnosis for eight years. We keep on struggling. We keep on fighting. We keep on organizing where it counts. And next we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, question or comment, please. Yeah, I want to thank the brothers for being on. Uh, it's been very enlightening. Uh, as always, he usually brings a very good uh, knowledge of history and the struggle. And uh, it's always a pleasure to hear him uh, and his analysis. Um, um, I, thank, thank you. Uh, my pleasure. It's just reality. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure what questions I have. I I don't <laughs> have any questions. I don't think at the okay. moment. Uh, no problem, brother Opie. In closing out, I would like for you to give us, from your perspective, what the present state and reality is. You know what's going on in terms of Zimbabwe. You know there are many um. Oh yeah. The, uh, man, it's been, a, it's been a while. It's been a, it's been a while since we've been it's been a while since we've been on. Um, and uh, yeah, since the last time we were on, well, we we know about the environmental uh, disaster that they dealt with. And what was so interesting is the United States government showed their hand. They said, "Give Mozambique all the help they want at all levels. Give um, Malawi." the help they need at all levels. But when it comes to Zimbabwe, work with the civil society organizations, which we weren't surprised. So basically work with the 350 uh, civil society groups that George Soros operates, work with the 36 that Madeleine Albright operates, and work with the 14 that Carl Gershman operates. Madeleine Albright runs the National Democratic Institute. Carl Gershman runs the National Endowment for Democracy. So what that showed us is that project that we have where we want to begin to um, send medical equipment and technical support to the Cuban doctors in Zimbabwe, that's more pressing than it's ever been. Um, Zimbabwe is dealing with an indigenization of their currency where since they've been dealing with sanctions, they've came up with two economic strategies to remedy the suffering but they was they weren't they had to reevaluate. The first one was about um ten years ago called the National Economic Development Priority Program and then they came with something called the Zimbabwe Agenda for Strategic Social Economic Transformation. And um this is part of the indigenizing effort that they're dealing with. And a lot of people don't understand who all the players are dealing with um the uh regime change. It's not just um the think tanks like uh, the Corporate Council on Africa. It's not just um, the Atlantic Council. It's not the 18 think tanks that are part of the State Department's think tank apparatus. You have so many players involved. Sir Richard Branson of Virgin Airlines has been pushing for regime change in Zimbabwe because he wants to take over control of the tourism. Um, R.J. Reynolds and Philip Morris tobacco companies have been looking to take over the tobacco industry in Zimbabwe. As a matter of fact, taking you all the way back to the Lancaster House negotiations in London, Jesse Helms snuck Muzariwa, Bishop Abel Muzariwa, the reactionary uh, 
pig posing as a man of God who was trying to sabotage the second Chimurenga. They snuck him to Washington and put him in a room with the CEOs of R.J. Reynolds and Philip Morris and said to them that if, if he let them take control of the tobacco industry, they would help him emerge as the leader over both um, former President Mugabe and former Vice President Nkomo and national hero Nkomo. So this has been going on for a very long time. So when we look at the opposition in Zimbabwe and also in relationship to the other dynamic the brother asked about Africa, I'm going to go social for a minute. Y'all know that in the last 10 years, there have been more marriages between Africans in the diaspora and Africans on the continent. We have to be very careful with that because I know some people right now that are married into the MDC network. And since Africans have the highest demographic of college graduates, PhDs, masters, and high school graduates in comparison to Europeans, in comparison to Asians, because they're always talking to us about immigration dynamics, but we're strugglers. We know the hype around that. If you come here from Cuba and say that you want to work for the demise of that revolution, you don't have any obstacles in immigration. If you come here from Zimbabwe and you say, you know, Emerson Monongagwa is worse than Robert Mugabe ever was, I want to aid you in regime change. You're coming right through the door. If you come here from Eritrea and say, you know what, Afwerki is a terrorist. We need to get rid of him. You're coming right through the door. You come here from Venezuela and say, I want to work with Guiado, who went to George Washington University to get his master's, by the way, in case y'all didn't know that. I want to work with Moses Niam, and you're from Venezuela. You're coming right through the door. If you come here from Bolivia and say, I'm working against Evo Morales, he's a dictator, you're coming right through the door. So I say that to say, um, as we're meeting, uh, as more of our sisters and brothers are marrying Africans on the continent because they feel that that makes them feel more indigenous, they better make sure that they're not marrying a regime change agent. And then the next thing you know, their children are reactionary. Their grandchildren are reactionary. Inside their homes, they've created a political culture of accepting neo-colonialist reactionary propaganda as their ideological blueprint to look at developments in the African world. So Zimbabwe stands as an alternative to that. Eritrea stands as an alternative to that. Namibia stands as an alternative to that. And so when we talk to our people about um, developing sister city projects or people-to-people campaigns, we must make sure that we take the, we remember what Nkrumah talked to us about defending liberated territory. We should not be so eager to develop relationships with neo-colonialist governments because that ends up compromising the revolutionary Pan-African direction. But what it shows us is that many people still don't recognize what Kwame Ture taught us. And I had to explain to Dr. Malefi Asante, who I understand was a guest a couple of weeks ago with you guys, that Pan-Africanism is not an ideology, it is an objective. When Jonas Savimbi flew into Cote d'Ivoire, I mean, when Joseph Savimbi flew back into Angola, he flew in on Hufet Boini's plane, the wicked dictator out of Cote d'Ivoire. That's Pan-African. When um, the Congressional Black Caucus throws their arms around MDC and votes in favor of sanctions on Zimbabwe, that's Pan-African, but it's neo-colonialist. When Don King takes Ali and Foreman to rumble in the Congo, that's Pan-African. But it, was to ch- but it ended up legitimizing Mobutu Seseko. That's Pan-African with neo-colonialists. So what we have is this Pan-Africanist masquerade now that is committed to spreading neo-colonialism as a political gospel. And, of course, we the undersized, 
We the underwoman, we the undermanned are the only ones who stand in the way of that. But we will be victorious. Okay, Brother O.P., again, we'd like to thank you for your contribution and our brother DJ Dash and Xavier for their contribution to today's program. Oh, man, much love. And everyone, listen, listen to that CD. And for those, and one of the things I love, Brother Africa, and my closing comment, not only do you give us a chance to come on and just share our outlook, you give us a chance to share our practical contributions. And we are so humbled that you give us that opportunity because let's face it, our people are so hungry for the information right now as we're dealing with this African cultural and historical reclamation movement that sometimes you get on shows and if you're not careful, you won't even get a chance to talk about your contributions because people are enthralled with the history that you may have to share. So thank you for always creating that lane for us to do that. Uh, we thank you for all that you do. And how can again to get in touch with you, your organization, mm-hmm. and your materials that you have sure. to Sure. Um, if people if people are interested in the Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company, they can go back over and listen to um, well www.massemphasis.com is coming soon. We've been spending a lot of time trying to get eight years worth of information and footage and pictures and essays from children on this one web page. So that should be done very soon. We also have, um, you know, we're going through the web, the uh, YouTube page that um, DJ Dash and Xavier did is they look like they're going to be our videographers moving forward. So um, that, and if people are interested in the Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company, they can email us at massemphasis2012 at gmail.com. And my personal email is O-B-I-E-G-B-U-N-A-1-5 at gmail.com. And like I said, we want to do two things. We'd be interested in starting a branch of Mass Emphasis in your area or developing a memorandum of understanding if you have an ensemble who is already doing similar work. So we're we're eager... We're anxious, and, you know, we just want to continue to work. We, we're like hungry for you. labor. Thank you again, Brother Opie, and mm-hmm. the youth that you have gracefully developed or developing, mm-hmm. DJ Dash and Xavier, for your contribution today. Oh, and so, right, I, I got one more thing to say in five seconds, and, I, oh, shame on me. That mixtape is our contribution to the Kwame Ture Traveling Exhibit that was introduced last year in Carnegie Guinea on the 20th, 20th anniversary of his passing, spearheaded by his son, Bukatsure. So that was our, our mixtape as a contribution to that effort. And if people want to see a showing of the mixtape, we're promoting that for the purpose of promoting the overall uh, um, traveling exhibit. So I, all well, I, have to, I had to say that. Well, I see it. Well done. And let's continue to stay in touch, Brother Obi. We thank you. Definitely. Thank you. All right, to our listening audience, you listen to Africa on the Move. What we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the cause. When we come back, we come back with our political panelists. We're going to talk about a little bit on what's going on in that community and the world. So we'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. Hello, soldier. 
And also, we don't understand that the players involved in terms of ensuring that the world moves steadily to the right. And so when I talk about the right, essentially what I'm talking about is the emergence of neo-Nazi forces throughout the world. In the past, I've talked about the fact that the U.S. played an intimate role in terms of facilitating that process. But I want to talk briefly about, specifically about individuals who play a big part in terms of making sure Europe in particular moves to the right. And there's a, there's a coalition called the Academy for the Judeo-Christian West. And this is a, uh, a group of individuals that was established by Steve Bannon. Of course, Steve Bannon was the former uh, administ- administrator for George Bush, I'm sorry, for, um, for um, this guy in the White House right now. Uh, now, he, he's connected to British, you know, very conservative politicians. In the U.K., he was re- referred to the, the, the business party as the Tories. And his relationship with this particular organization is pretty strong among those individuals in the U.K., who consider themselves um, very, very conservative. Now, the academy strategy is very, very straightforward. We want to train you know, right-wing nationalists, and this is important, because often we don't talk about nationalism when we talk about popularists. And when we talk about populists, essentially what we're saying is those people who position is that, you know, only a certain strata of society should have control over that society. And to the extent and the, and the, and the benefits of that society, they should be accrued to those individuals, you know, who are at the top, and they're essentially nationalists, but they call, but they call themselves populists. Uh, the second thing they want to do in terms of strategy is they want to spread racism throughout Europe, and they've been very successful in terms of, you know, highlighting, you know, um, this conflict with, with so-called immigrants, uh, so-called Muslim communities, and that's part of the strategy. So we understand that this, when, we, when we hear about this kind of thing in the news, we understand that it's not a fruit that is conscious by design. It's a strategic move. And, you know, one of the things also in terms of the group, when they're promoting this individual by the name of uh, Benjamin Howell. Now, his whole vision is all about, you know, increasing Western imperialism. His thing is that there's not enough structure, destruction and violence um, perpetrated by the West, that they need, actually need more. And so in order to ensure that uh, the West, you know, prevails, that you have to have more destruction, more killing, uh, more chaos, because it serves the interests of the West by simply keeping the world in a state of chaos, which means that not only when you, when you kill folks that infected, but ultimately, you know, it silences any, 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 any kind of challenges in the, in the future against, you know, these kind of imperialist practices. But lastly, uh, the whole point is to create this institution called the Dignity of Human Institutions. And now this is an institution that they were trying to establish in Italy. And unfortunately, the Italian masses came out in support in the opposition to this particular this particular group. And so there's a consequence the institution wasn't established. But Bannon and his people can continue. They persist in terms of trying to create, you know, this kind of institution. So clearly, when we talk about this right-wing drift, when we talk about this push for Nazism, spread Nazism throughout the world, people can understand that essentially what they're saying is that certain people are esoteric. Their existence is unimportant. And so as working people, you know, poor people in America, they'll be very concerned about that mindset and the, imp- the potential implications for us, you know, as people of color in the society. So I thought it was very, very interesting. Thank you, Brother Haki. Let's go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world in the community? Yes. Um uh, let's see. The uh the persecution of uh the indigenous uh, people of the uh, uh, and nations of the Western Hemisphere is intensifying. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, Trump signed an order uh, ordering ICE 
uh, and uh, uh, raids in 10 cities in the U.S. starting today. And uh, they, uh, there, has been, there have been demonstrations uh, in several cities opposing this move. Uh, and uh, particularly, you, you know, in, in the Northeast, and uh, you know, and uh, it's a sign of the intensification of, uh, you know, the racism that 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 pervades uh, this society. And also, uh, let's see, um, uh, uh, let's see. In uh, in several areas throughout the U.S., um, uh, African women are 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 are, are continuing to disappear under very uh, you know uh, mysterious circumstances, and uh, and and it's and it's getting very uh, little attention in the media, except uh, you know of course their media families are concerned. But it seems to be uh, uh, to be intensifying uh, recently. Okay, thank you, Brother Anthony. Let's go to Brother Jabari. Brother Jabari, what's going on in your world in the community? There are a few items that I want to lift up. Um, one of the items is I recently saw a commercial where this particular um, technology company was advocating an alternative to traditional schooling where through some type of computer curriculum and program the student could spend their regular school day at home as long as they had um, access to a computer and engage in the study. And I find this troubling because one thing that we've noticed with recent political trends, especially in the U.S., Bessie DeVos, the Secretary of Education, has vehemently said she's opposed to public education. So when you look at what this um, program could do one thing is limiting the child's development because he's not interact. He or she would not interact with other students. You have to look at the fact that um, whoever developed the technology is going to get a big payday from somewhere. And then you also have to look at depending on how many people engage in this. They're going to try to use this as a justification. As you know, the several public schools are closing. They're going to continue to do that to impact people's livelihoods. And something else I want to share is recently at a Walmart in Texas, there was a woman that participated in some type of social media challenge, and she opened up a tub of ice cream and licked it. And she's looking at getting 20-plus years in prison as a result of this particular stunt. And what really, another thing I found troubling is the ice cream company that, um, was at the center of attention because it was the tub was made by this particular brand. In lieu of questioning the woman's sense, all they could say was this was clear food contamination. And Walmart did not say anything regarding the particular sentencing of the said woman. Hmm. Interesting. Let's go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, it's been kind of a slow week. Uh, um, uh, I don't know. It's been some interesting things. I think uh, in terms of personalities, Serena Williams losing the second time at Wilmington uh, as a role model for young girls. Uh, 
I I'm not certain. Uh, uh, I'll leave. I'll, I'll leave it right there. It's been slow. Thank you. Okay, panelists, uh, listen, audience, you listen to Africa on the Move. We're going to do a quick station break, and when we come back. We'd like to have our final thoughts from our panelists and analysts. And also, panelists, I want y'all to think about your response to a recent uh, news report today about the behavior of Donald Trump when he tweeted out some tweaks, where he uh, tweeted towards the so-called um, Congress people who represent minorities communities, where he um, stated, in, in terms of paraphrasing it, that they should go back into their own community and take care of the problems in order to fix our community. And it was very racist, had a very racist overtone. What does that, what kind of message does that send to um, African people, oppressed people in these communities today where he is openly um, displaying this kind of racist behavior? I'd like to have your response to that when we come back, but let's just pause for this call and we'll be right back. You're listening to Brother Africa on Africa on the move. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs her freedom. 
Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. We'd like to welcome you back to Apple Moon. We are in our final phase of closing out for tonight. And based upon everything that we are discussing tonight, we have special guest, Brother Obi Bunu. And he's the founder of the Mass Emphasis Church in History and Theater Company. And we had two students who is a uh, product of the San Kofi Home School Community, DJ Dodge and Xavier. We had a really interesting discussion with them, with them tonight. And um, panelists, based upon all that was said today, I would just like to have your final remark, remarks for today's program. We'll start off with you, Brother Moses, your final remarks for today's program. Well, it was a good program, uh, very educational. Uh, the young people uh, um, did a marvelous job uh, doing a tribute to Kwame uh, Ture. And uh, I think the, the brother was the one that uh, gave a very, very enlightened uh historical overview of the Pan-African movement over the years, and that was very good. So it's been a very, very educational show. I thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Zimbabwe, your final thoughts for tonight. If nothing else, this was definitely um, inspirational in terms of the work that a Ten-year-old and a thirteen-year-old way was to do in terms of one of the greatest proponents of freedom for Africans. So we have to understand that the potential is there. It's a matter of those who do have the knowledge sharing and continue to or, to advocate and um, organize others so that we can get our freedom and liberation. Peace. And brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight? Uh yes. Um, uh, I, I would say based upon uh, the program tonight, uh, our future looks bright uh, in spite of all the problems we're facing. And uh, let's see, and uh, as far as uh, Trump's remarks, uh, you know, to the, uh, to the Congress uh, 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 women, it reflects mm-hmm. a racism, uh, a level of racism that he has exhibited throughout his uh, political career. And it reminds me of uh, 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 of when he first got national exposure for taking out a full-page ad, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, advocating, uh, you, uh, you know, the death penalty for the so-called Central Part 5. And, uh, and I think his behavior shown, has shown that he has not, he has not, uh, changed over the decades. Thank you, Brother Hector. And Brother Haki, your response to that statement by number 40, what, 46? 
and your final thoughts. Yeah, well, first let me just reiterate uh, African Women's Trip to Cuba, which takes place October 31st to November 6th, and we encourage people to give us a call at 804-549-7492 or area code 202-714-9435 or email us at African Women's Association, number two, at gmail.com. And my response to that clown, 45, you know, I, I really, I, I, you know, I refuse to dignify his stupidity. You know, he pretty much epitomizes the ignorance, uh, the hoogans that exist among the ruling elite, it with the exception that he's not that bright. And so, therefore, when he say things, understand that he's not very, very bright. But he is bright enough to facilitate racism. Uh, but other than that, I have no real response to any, any ridiculousness that he says. Uh, you know, I, but I think we'll say this. I think one of the problems you got to be concerned about is that people's interpretation, particularly the right wing, their interpretation of law has the impact of being actually weaponized. So we got to get understanding, you know, that a lot of these laws that are taking place are specifically geared toward not only to the debilitation of a people, but the elimination of a, of a people. So we got to be very concerned about that. So having said that, Brother Africa, I wish you a good night. And as always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix. matrix. And on that note, we'd like to thank all of our analysts and panelists and our guests tonight for sharing information with the people. We know while information we cannot think, and while organization we cannot think clearly, we highly encourage all of our brothers and sisters and people who love to advance humanity that the best way to advance humanity and to feel humanity from all the various forms of oppression is to be organized. So please join an organization that's doing something to advance some kind of just cause. Remember, Africa or the Move is a community project of the African Awareness Association. You can hear this radio program every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. If you have any views, comments, or questions concerning this program or any program that you may have listened to, please write us and let us know by emailing us at Africa on the Move 2 at gmail.com. So at this point in time, you can continue to subscribe to go forward. I'm back with Devil. We're going to leave you with lessons from the 60s through the 90s by Brother Kwame Toure. And again, we look forward to seeing you next week. Please spread the word. And remember, Pan-Africanism is the key. It will set all African free. We'll see you next week. This is Africa on the <laughs>
resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. As if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time. 
but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> and one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, 
when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who once having made gains are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. <laughs> that was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in a society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students to clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers, and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. 
We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. But that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. <clears throat> Uh, the students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area the 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and as a mobilized area, there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the power of the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. 
This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know us Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interests. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interests of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interests as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Snick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. 
Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans, assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there, with one fighting against the other, simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions, then, can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Conscious he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind even if he thinks he's forgotten it. 
And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness, if you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today, the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say, if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. But they themselves have come to demonstrate it, the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere, the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is, of course, the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes. Yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question, and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have changed and will have changed by any means necessary. The final point then, the final point then, you must not become confused by the American capitalist system which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> You volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? <laughs> but if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa... They seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on this blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then, for the 60s, 
The class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masters must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America they say our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the Claire Poise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we, who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we, who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor, we're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down, we're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. Thank you.